0: hello fellow innovators this is Patrick Evans and this is Shelley Nelson welcome to the innovation and the digital enterprise podcast where we interview successful visionaries and leaders giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations today we're welcoming Will McGivern-Smith to the show Will is the Chief Strategy Officer at True Data. He brings over 10 years of digital experience to True Data with an emphasis on desktop and mobile activation, optimization, and analytics. Prior to joining True Data, Will worked at Nielsen Catalina Solutions for five years, shaping and growing a diverse set of functions, including data science, product, business development, and sales. Will holds a BA in Economics from Carleton College and an MS in Predictive Analytics and Data Science from Northwestern University here in Chicago.
1: Welcome to the show, Will.
2: Thanks, Shelley and Patrick. Really a pleasure to be here today.
1: Um, can you share with our listeners uh, more about yourself and also some more about True Data?
2: Yeah, absolutely. For for those that really want to dig into uh to, to my origin story, I'm I'm happy to to do that. So you know, r- really kind of high level and, and simply, you know, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. So sort of you know, born and raised here in the Midwest, uh, and went to Carleton College. To your point, Patrick. Uh, for my undergrad work, uh, you know, specialized in economics and kind of a very quantitative sect of, of economics. Uh, after graduating, I graduated in in 2009, you know, during the, you know, truly the kind of mortgage crisis, not a great time to be finding a job, but I, I landed one at Starcom MediaVest, one of the big advertising agencies here in uh, in, in Chicago, really focusing on kind of TV research and looking at, uh, you know, what types of populations and viewership were, were really engaging with which type of TV shows and using that Sort of data and analysis to help you know brands and marketers kind of plan and, and optimize their their tv advertising spending uh sort of you know at that same time frame kind of 2009 i remember kind of a very formative article in the economist uh front page article called the data deluge and this was really you know kind of right uh you know during the, the time that the lexicon of big data predictive analytics data science was kind of coming into vogue and kind of front and center and i remember reading that and thinking this is really the kind of sect and, and area that I want to play in with a background in econ, a lot of econometric work. And this really felt like we we're at kind of a, a tipping point in 2009 of, you know, really having the infrastructure, the scale of data uh, and being at a moment where you could really start to put uh, those kind of tools and, and data sets to work to make much, much smarter business decisions. And so I realized that to do that, I was going to need to sort of graduate from Sort of my Excel skills and and some much more rudimentary types of of statistical analyses uh, to something that was much more large scale. And so at that time, I found a new job at Nielsen Catalina Solutions, which is a joint venture between uh, the Nielsen company and Catalina Marketing, uh, who had at, at that point, you know, about 60 million U.S. households where they had loyalty card data, so basically, you know, what are you buying at Safeway, at Rite Aid, at Walgreens, and scanning that loyalty card for, uh, and basically using that purchase data to help drive, you know, more effective online ad targeting, as well as kind of measuring those those investments. And so that was a great place for me to kind of cut my my data science teeth. Lots of, of big data sets to play with, uh, and simultaneously, you know, during that time, kind of 2010, went back to school at Northwestern part time. Uh, and got a a data science degree uh, and a master sort of in that capacity. That was a really, you know, great moment, at least for for me personally, to kind of have workplace, uh, you know, projects that were very, very rich in terms of, you know, data and analytics, while also be sort of learning, you know, while also learning, you know, new analytical techniques and and sort of methodologies to kind of, you know, put to work at at work. And so great, you know, kind of uh, moment there in, in my trajectory. Kind of over that arc at Nielsen Catalina, uh, moved from about two and a half years in data science and kind of leading a lot of our R&D efforts into a true kind of product management role. So kind of helping to commercialize and, and really bring to market some of those uh, sort of, you know, newer products that, that we had had in the lab for, for a number of years uh, at that point. And then ended up, you know, for my last kind of two years at Nielsen Catalina, looking after business development. And so that really meant bringing our, our sort of targeting and, and ad measurement products to new channels like Facebook, Pandora, Twitter, and really helping to bring the capabilities that we had uh, had built and plugging those into you know, really the digital advertising channels that uh, our, our clients needed to, to sort of leverage those, those tools within. Along that you know, kind of BD arc, uh, I, I met um, as I was looking for a particular vendor to help us solve a, a problem of connecting those people and those kind of loyalty cards to those people's digital devices to sort of enable uh, those services. I met Elliot Easterling, our founder at True Data. At that point, we were called Twine Data. Um, but I was in, in New York on a business trip. Uh, I got an intro from a colleague who said, "Hey, you know, Elliot watched one of our podcasts, or excuse me, at that point uh, uh, watch one of our webinars." Um, and long story short, you know, he w- wants to connect because he thinks that there's an opportunity to sort of help solving that solve that problem for Nielsen Catalina. Long story short, had coffee the next day uh, in New York, Uh, it was about 2014, while Elliot and and Twine at that point weren't big enough for me to bring in front of uh, the Nielsen sort of, you know, privacy overlords, he had done sort of an incredible job with three people at that point in terms of starting to, to build out his digital identity graph to kind of connect people to devices. Uh, and so we stayed stayed in touch about a year later, you know, it helped do some consulting work to get uh, his business to a point where he could really raise sort of his seed round and ultimately came on board in, in, in 2015. And so it's been at this point about six and a half years of, of a lot of, uh, you know, sort of great results and also, you know, definitely a lot of work at, at True TrueData. Uh, and I've sort of, you know, moved through an arc of, Starting out in a business development role at True Data to really help us get to the point where we could raise a, a true Series A uh, and really engage with the with kind of venture community. Uh, and then since then, I've taken on product management. Uh, I was the chief product officer for about three and a half or four years at True Data. And then recently, I've graduated really just focused on strategy and, and corporate development.
1: Mm. So interesting. I'm curious uh, why it went from the name Twine Data to True Data.
2: It's a great question. You know, it was a hard change for me. You know, I, I liked the name Twine. Uh, we had this great logo that I loved. That was kind of this database icon. You know, the kind of cylindrical icon, but it had we kind of made it look like a twine ball, so it felt like techy and cool. But we could still kind of tie all this data together with with our Twine, if you will. True Data was was definitely a change. Um, and I think it, you know, at the end of the day, it was it was the simple reason was. We needed a, a our name to sort of embody, you know, really what we stood for. And as we were talking to, you know, the advertising community, advertising agencies, it was a lot easier to go in with the name like True Data and immediately have folks understand, yeah, maybe that feels a little trite, but we understand generally what you're what you're, what you're aiming at. Versus Twine, which you know maybe required a, a little bit more of a discussion to help people understand the, the background there.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: So if, if you don't mind sharing a little bit of the origins of True data, I know when we spoke earlier, that was, it was a very interesting story. Uh, and it's obviously, uh, it's an interesting time for that whole space. So um, if you don't mind sharing that
2: yeah absolutely I'll try not to go too deep into the the advertising technology you know rabbit hole and, and and jargon but you know at a high level um you know 2013 uh kind of in October was when Elliot founded the, the our, our business and and really his his vision at that time you know in, in 2013 this was really kind of you know during the rise of you know smartphones you know huge increases from kind of 2011, 2012, 2013, in terms of, you know, true kind of smartphone, iOS and Android penetration. Uh, And it was also a time where both of those, you know, Apple and Google operating systems released new sort of identifiers to help advertisers be able to recognize a device that might have seen an ad or that they might want to sort of communicate with or talk to, uh, but doing that in a more kind of privacy-centric way. Uh, It was also kind of during a, a time where there was this huge pendulum swing towards being able to do more, you know, kind of what you'd call one-to-one targeting and and, and sort of advertising within our industry in terms of not just necessarily, let's say, buying a TV spot, which kind of will reach obviously a large number of people, but, you know, you have sort of less precision on, on who that is. You're kind of just talking to whoever happens to be, you know, tuning into that commercial versus, you know, kind of, you know, the arc from 2010, 2011, 2012 was really focused on How do you communicate on more of a one-to-one basis based on what you might know about? You know Shelly or what you might know about, you know, where a particular device, if you will, has, has been or, or what you know a particular device is doing. And so, you know, sort of along that arc, as mobile was becoming sort of more of a, a prominent channel, yet a lot more engagement, you know, on, on mobile in that kind of 2012, 2013 timeframe, there was a huge sort of interest from advertisers and, and kind of our, our advertising community on how do we help bring that same level of kind of one-to-one communication and precision from marketing into that mobile channel and so really the the initial thesis of the business was about as simple as let's you know create a privacy-centric and very safe way to basically connect uh you know shelly and and her email address you know shelly at gmail to her mobile phone to help folks really take a lot of their let's say crm data you think about a company like kohl's they understand you know everything you buy on their site everything you buy in their store Helping them bring that data to bear to help them, you know, with use cases like, uh, can I, you know, retarget my lapsed customers who maybe used to spend hundreds of dollars per year at Kohl's, haven't spent in the last six months? How can I use, you know, sort of that that past legacy data to help engage somebody online with messaging like, hey, we miss you. Uh, here's ten percent off your your next purchase. Uh, we'd love to see you again. And so really, that that idea of building a bridge from the offline kind of people-based data sets and CRM data sets that brands want to leverage for their marketing work and making that actionable and available uh, sort of in the, the mobile ecosystem.
0: Very cool. So one of the things we, we talked about that I'd, I'd like to dig into details on is, uh, you know, you've got a lot of experience when it, when it comes to venture capital and, um, and one of the things that I really love to for you to share is your background, your experience, um, pros and cons of, of different approaches, if that's okay.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is such a such a fun one and definitely a complicated one. So, so definitely, kind of ch- chime in and keep me on track. Um, oh, do. you know, at, at the highest level, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, venture capital is, is is a huge, you know, sort of opportunity and an asset that that entrepreneurs can can draw from. But but it definitely comes with you know sort of pros and cons. And at the end of the day, I think it's important for entrepreneurs to sort of go into, you know, a, a venture and kind of fundraising process with with eyes wide open and, and really kind of think about what they're trying to get out of, of, of that kind of process. And, you know, it, and maybe one way that I kind of break down this this problem is, is, is really thinking about, you know, sort of what business problem are, are you solving and, and what kind of company are you building? Because at least in from my experience, that has a huge kind of bearing on, you know, both how much money do you need to raise, but also, you know, what type of venture, you know, kind of partners, you know, might you look to to sort of support your, your journey. And so, you know, s- simple kind of, you know, business terms, often you, you'd start with something like, you know, what, what's the compelling, you know, unmet need, you know, that, that you're, you're trying to solve, right, you know, within the, the world, whether that's for, a, you know, kind of a personal, you know, business and a consumer sort of opportunity or a B2B, you know, kind of, kind of business. But this is really, at least in my experience, like what's incredibly important to start with is really what is that compelling pain that, you know, whatever that, that kind of target persona is, What's that existential pain that they have that, that you're going to go solve? You know, from, from there, you often kind of break that down into, great, you know, you might have a, a very compelling pain point you want to solve, but how many people or companies sort of realistically have that, that problem? And, you know, it starts to get towards some of these venture concepts like, you know, what, what's your total addressable market and some of the subsets, you know, SAM, et cetera, from, from that. But ultimately, you know, those are important things to think about you know, r- really what is it going to take to start to go, you know, tackle that that particular problem and how big is the opportunity? You know, from, from there you start to think about, and this is really where, where I think the venture, you know, conversation starts, what is the, you know, sort of solution that you're going to build uh, to solve that very, very compelling problem? And and what does it really take to to do that? And I think you know, for, for a business like ours, we took the approach of really kind of bootstrapping, you know, for the first couple of years, uh, having very, very small kind of drip financing uh, to go and kind of penetrate, you know, a, a very specific, you know, kind of market segment and iterate, you know, on that product more in that that bootstrapped uh, sort of approach versus there, the reality is, you know, I think there are other types of markets where, you know, if you said, hey, I wanna go build, you know, an Airbnb competitor, realistically, the amount of capital that, that you're going to need to kind of enter a segment like that to go, you know, sort of buy your way into that that sort of two-sided marketplace is is fundamentally different. And so as you think about, you know, the problem you're solving uh, and, and what that's going to take to sort of, you know, build that solution, a lot of it comes down to, you know, can you bootstrap, uh, you know, a solution to that that problem slowly and sort of organically, or, you know, is this a market and a problem that is just so big with some entrenched competitors that you need to go really fast on and you're going to basically, you know, need to effectively kind of subsidize your way into a particular segment, you may need to start thinking about, you know, much, much larger sort of, uh, you know, check sizes and, and a strategy um, that's very different versus the kind of, you know, bootstrapping uh, approach. Maybe one other way to, to think about, you know, the, the, the venture community is, you know, if, if, if you start to break down, you know, the types of VCs that, that are out there kind of against that, you know, uh, smaller funds, you know, larger funds, you have the, the flagship companies like Sequoia, Andreessen, folks like SoftBank, right, you know, who really have, have very, very large piles of dry par- powder and, and capital, huge fund sizes. And, and simply put, you know, at least in my mind, their, their kind of, you know, investment thesis is we want to go you know, make our, our living on finding the next Grand Slam, finding the next Facebook, finding the next uh, you know, Airbnb, and really, you know, finding investments that you know will pay off at you know, 10 plus X in terms of uh, the, the return to those kind of you know capital providers. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, you have more of the kind of you know smaller VCs like like uh, you know our lead uh, partner at aligned who has a much smaller fund, writes, you know, much, much smaller kind of check sizes. Um, And ultimately, you know, her thesis is, you know, capital efficient businesses that can get to profitability and ultimately an exit with less than $10 million in total capital raised. And so Mm -hmm. when you start to think about, you know, what you see from an Andreessen or a Sequoia, you know, if you're lucky enough to have the kind of entrepreneurial track record that you can go raise money from that community, there's a huge opportunity, uh, you know, that that creates around the cachet of those funds, the amount of capital that they, uh, you know, can inject into your business, the ability for those funds to go deep into your fundraising cycle—Series A, Series B, Series C—but uh, you know, typically what that comes with is you have larger valuations uh, and larger check sizes, which really importantly for entrepreneurs specifically means that you're going to have more preference. And so what that means is at the end of the day, if you go raise, you know, let's say a hundred million dollars on a billion dollar valuation, you're going to need, you're going to need to sell your business for at least, you know, a hundred million dollars before you even have a chance to make anything. And so what, where the rubber meets the road is you see these kind of very large uh, you know, scale unicorns who have perpetually you know gone through the fundraising cycle, haven't necessarily built a profitable business and have really you know, lived on raising around, growing to raise another round. And what that can create in some cases is you know this kind of stranded unicorn moment where you're, you're so big from you know, sort of a revenue standpoint, you're technically you know so, so valuable on paper, that there are very few companies that, that can buy you for that you know, sort of needed price point. And for some companies, you know, the public markets and going down an, an IPO route just isn't a, a credible option. You know, there are some sectors where you know, the IPO markets just, just don't understand you know, kind of what, what those businesses and verticals are about. And that can be very challenging. You know, if you get to a point where you're a very large company, but there aren't big enough acquirers out there, you know, in the private space uh, to kind of take over your business, uh, you know, at the right multiples. And, and you can get into situations where you just can't, you know, find liquidity for your business at, at, you know, sort of a number that gets you over that that preference stack. And so that's, you know, the, the benefit of those large funds is cash A. If you can, you know, get those large checks, you can hire way ahead of revenue. You can go incredibly fast can use those, you know, sort of funds and, and VCs as ways to enter much you know, more challenged markets in terms of, you know, those that have entrenched players and, and kind of competitors. But it comes at the cost of, again, a lot more preference and, and, and you know, frankly, uh, a, a lot of control that that type of VC is going to want to, you know, exert on your business versus, you know, the lower end of the spectrum, you know, raising smaller, you know, rounds, you're going to have, a smaller kind of preference hurdle that you need to get over as an entrepreneur, ultimately, uh, you know, to realize sort of an event uh, once you're at escape velocity, but you're going to have less money to play with, and you're going to probably have to be much more focused on, you know, getting to profitability, you know, more quickly. And it can also create situations with those those smaller funds where you may, you know, have raised a series A or a series B from, from one venture partner, who just isn't going to have the check size and, you know, the kind of, you know, dry powder in their fund to go help you with the series C, for example. And and when you're in those moments, you know, that can create some conflict around how do you bring in a new capital partner who can, you know, write those bigger kind of later stage checks, um, while also, you know, kind of recapping out your, your earlier investors who probably have some serious control provisions over, you know, when and how you can raise uh, and and those things, you know, can create friction in those, those kind of smaller funds.
0: That's awesome. I I love all of that. Uh, There's a couple of things I want to dig in on. You you mentioned series A, series B, series C, and, uh, you know, maybe uh, for our listeners, you know, uh, I'm at times unclear of exactly what series A, series B, right. So yeah i think it's a it's a big challenge for people who haven't been through it right so if you could share maybe you know that process and mechanics how does it get started right uh when do you start looking for these right what are the events that that cause these these to go to a a series c right and seek maybe a bigger check from like who you started with
2: yeah makes makes a, a a lot of sense it's a great question um you know i think you know if i maybe use our our business as sort of an anecdote but we kind of extrapolate from there you know for for us the the early stage moment of 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 you know looking for at least our seed round was really about you know we, we had an idea we had you know a little bit of data coming in at true data uh, we had you know two or three customers that were were licensing you know sort of our identity product at that point kind of in in 2014 and we realized okay you know, we think we're onto something. Uh, we we have revenue coming in the door, uh, but we need to go higher a little bit ahead of revenue. We don't have the cash flow right now to bring on you know the additional engineers that we want, another salesperson, and so we're going to need some outside money to be able to go you know kind of move faster, higher ahead, and sort of you know keep our growth rate uh, you know kind of in the the area that, that we wanted it. And so what that meant was you know really kind of raising a, a seed round, and so that was about you know three hundred thousand dollars that we raised uh, in. 2014. Uh, and ultimately, that was from kind of a network of very, very small angel investors uh, in San Francisco called the, the Band of Angels. And so think about the, this as a group of very successful, you know wealthy people who, who get together, who are certified investors. And collectively, you know, sort of put money into to early stage companies. And so that was a, a hugely formative moment for us. And with that kind of, you know, early stage seed round to be able to get, you know, at that point, $300,000 for the the four of us and be able to go effectively double the team size, hire a couple more engineers, hire a salesperson. That process, you know, in the the early stage, you know, kind of you know, venture community is very standard to have these you know angel groups of you know small you know networks of of you know high net worth individuals who do angel investing. There are also you know smaller kind of angel funds you know that are very focused on that that extremely early stage kind of high risk investing. But typically, you know the process there you know in early stage isn't fundamentally dissimilar you know from the later stage in investing. You know often you know you're going to start by Reaching out to a, a number of these smaller angel funds, like you might, you know, with with some more you know large scale VCs, uh, and you're going to start probably by talking to an analyst, uh, and you're going to have to tell them your sort of high level story. You might then move into you know kind of up to an associate, which is kind of the next level of gatekeeper at these venture firms. But ultimately, your goal is to get a meeting with you know kind of the you know if it's a true venture firm, the the partners or to be invited uh, you know, to one of the investment committee discussions for one of these kind of smaller uh, you know angel networks and really, you know, pitch your business. And, and typically, you know, what that looks like is you're gonna have uh, a very standard, you know, sort of artifact, which is kind of a, a pitch deck, and you can go online and look at lots of great examples of, of venture pitch decks. But this you know basically lays out here's the, the high-level problem that you're trying to solve in the market and why why it's so important to solve the solution that you're going to, you know, bring to solve that and why it's different and unique. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, other key elements, like, you know, how big is the market that you're you're tackling? What's the team that you have in place to go and, and sort of deliver on that, that problem. And, and in a lot of ways, it looks like a, a sales process. But at the same time, it's, it's one of the most complicated sales processes that, that you'll go through, uh, because you have to have a, a very simple, elegant story that, resonates you know sort of in an elevator or to somebody who maybe really doesn't understand your industry or your market but also you know sort of has a lot of the support in detail because you will run into that partner at you know your vc or uh, at an angel fund that really does understand your, your market and so you're going to need to be able to kind of peel back the layers of the onion if you will and Talk about big animal pictures. Here's the high-level problem. Uh, you know, people don't like hotels anymore. There's an opportunity to uh, sort of rent your house and, and let folks, you know, stay there. Here, here's the Airbnb, you know, sort of solution. Uh, but, but long story short, you know, making sure that you can go very, very deep uh, into those nuances uh, about, you know, really sort of your, your ability to execute on that that vision. Uh, to get folks you know who, who do understand your space much much more comfortable and so you know typically you know from, from there if uh, if the the partners and kind of your your firm uh, and, or the, the venture community you know like, likes what you're you're talking about you know then you'd you know ultimately get a term sheet which is going to talk about kind of the details around all right we believe your company is worth X dollars we want to you know sort of help you raise you know, write a check of roughly this size after that investment, and we believe your company will be worth, you know, roughly X. And, you know, that term sheet will have some other very important, uh, you know, sort of elements in it around the control provisions that, you know, your investors are going to want, you know, requirements for board meetings, requirements for, uh, you know, maybe certain provisions on that, you know, the the venture partners will have, you know, control over, like, when can you raise more money? Do those venture uh, kind of partners need to you know kind of explicitly approve that uh can they block that sort of activity and so that term sheet's a very important kind of vehicle to to really stipulate in sort of clear english here's the terms of that investment that you're getting and then ultimately you know from there if you're get through that stage and you like the terms that that someone is proposing then you go into the the deep you know sort of contracting process in terms of really memorializing those those investments and so that is very similar you know from my experience across you know early stage and into the sort of later stages of, of, of fundraising but typically you know the, the ways that you know that that is different is you know the, the early stage kind of seed investors you know these are folks um you know typically who, who are very you know tolerant of, of of large risk right they're they're investing in small businesses with the expectation that you know hey this may not work but if it does i'm buying into this company very very early and and if they're successful that has the opportunity to be you know very financially rewarding for, for those early stage in investors. As you move, you know, kind of, you know, from a, a seed investment and an angel investment into something like a, a series A, you know, really the expectation there is, you know, just that your company is obviously growing, uh, there's going to be more, you know, sort of requirements for uh, revenue and getting closer to profitability, you know, as you get kind of into the, the series A, series B sort of element. And typically I, I would say series A, you know, companies, uh, are, you know, you know, have some traction, are showing that they have some level of customers, they have a product uh, that there's clearly, you know, sort of a, a path for those to become real businesses, uh, but they're probably, you know, still kind of subscale. They're not really, you know, uh, at that moment of, uh, of of truly, you know, necessarily having exact product market fit. But they're, you know, they have revenue and there's a belief that with an injection of of kind of capital, you're going to be able to kind of make those last iterations, find that that product market fit, get your sales flywheel going, and really become, you know, sort of a rocket ship for for lack of a better term. Once you're into the kind of Series B, Series C stage. The expectation there really is that you have that product market fit. It's very clear, you know, that there's a customer who wants your product. They have a deep kind of pain that that, that creates that need. Your solution's differentiated and truly it is kind of flying off the shelves. And so you can see that sales flywheel going. And at that point, you know, your kind of later stage series B, Series C kind of plus investors are going to look, you know, maybe slightly more like sort of growth equity firms who are going to say, this is really a place where you've proven that your mousetrap works. And, and now we got to just help you go and you know, be able to build and sell a lot more mousetraps, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm just curious during that seed stage, at least for our audience members, I mean, what are some maybe mistakes that you've made? Or you see people that that make in your space? And also, I'm, I'm curious, with some of these investors that you're in front of, do you have to kind of know your audience and know what motivates them? And, and depending on your product, do you go to different types of investors?
2: That's a great, great point. Maybe I'll take the, the, the second one first, and then we can talk about all the mistakes that that, that we've made. But I think you're exactly right. You know, that the, the theses, if you will, of these different invest, investors, you know, definitely varies. You know, you'll have some that maybe in simple terms are very focused just on on the team. Right. You know, who who is the group of people who is solving this problem? What track record do they have of taking on investment, building companies, and then paying back those investors, you know, through kind of liquidity events? You know, that for for I think for a lot of, you know, investors is is a very, very important criteria. Just who is it that's that's solving this problem and so you'll see firms that are very focused on you know sort of the the teams that they're investing in you know others will, will have very you know uh, kind of set focuses in terms of the sectors or the markets that they want to invest in so you may have a, a venture capital firm that says hey we're really you know we understand the advertising market incredibly well we have partners you know in our fund who come from that world so it's, it's a market we understand we also you know have access to talent in that particular market we put on conferences for that market and so you have some some venture partners and, and you know kind of front funds that will say we really only focus on these few sectors. And so that, that's a great set of questions, Shelley, you know, to make sure that you're kind of researching, you know, on those, those firms' websites, but also that in that first analyst or kind of associate meeting in those early stage discussions that you're asking those, you know, what, 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 what are the criteria for investment? Are you more of a, you know, people and kind of team-focused fund? Are there certain sectors that you're, you're focused on? You know, other key questions in those early meetings are know what is your average check size, right? You know, are you writing checks of fifty thousand dollars or are you writing checks of fifty million dollars? And, and that becomes incredibly important, um, you know, based on kind of your strategy and, and, and how you need to capitalize that strategy as an entrepreneur to make sure that, you know, of course you're not wasting time on folks who are only going to write a check that either you don't need or or maybe, you know, you say, hey, I, I don't I don't want that size check because it's gonna come with Certain amounts of control and certain amounts of kind of preference that maybe aren't the right thing for for your business. So that's maybe you know, on the kind of you know venture side. Uh, a few bullets on some of the, the differences that I've seen in terms of, of mistakes that we've made. You know, we could spend probably three hours talking about all, all, of, our, all of our mistakes. <laughs> all right, how about
0: the biggest one? The,
2: the biggest one, at least in, in fundraising, is is uh, you know for lack of a better term, I would say just keep it simple, stupid. I mean, th- this is really. You, you have to start at you know kind of a hundred thousand foot level if you will sort of big animal pictures as, as we like to say and really you know make the problem about as clear for anyone you know from your grandmother to the person who most deeply understands whatever problem you're solving that kind of problem statement needs to be incredibly clear and and, and sort of elegant um and and simple at, at the same time you know fr- from so generally Problem statement very, very important. How you articulate the solution to your your problem, uh, incredibly important. But you know, ultimately, that kind of you know simple mantra that should really flow through you know the entirety of that that kind of pitch deck. We've we've made the mistake too many times of getting way too deep into the weeds and into the rabbit hole uh, about, you know, our market, how our product works, you know, all the great things that we do, uh, which is a very, I think, standard thing for entrepreneurs who are kind of living and breathing a problem every minute of every day. It's hard not to be a little infatuated about with what you're doing and wanting to go really, really deep. It, that said, you know, from a true, you know, kind of fundraising standpoint and, and the sales elements within that, it can be really, really counterproductive, you know, for that senior person who's in the room that really is, one of the key decision makers on you know kind of which companies get funded if you're going deep into a rabbit hole that they don't understand and you're not kind of reading your room that that can you know very much derail your your kind of meetings and your pitches and and, and your overall process and so trying to keep the body of that story to be really really simple but then making sure that you know in your appendix you have all the proof points you know so that when somebody digs in and asks those hard pointed questions you can clearly kind of go to those deeper levels but you can keep the story very, very high level, um, you know, to the extent that that that's where the the partners and and, and kind of the the investor wants to stay.
0: So I I, I totally get where you're saying, as a person who does not have like the skill set to actually create that succinct, concise, and as you called it, elegant explanation, is that something like is there people like who would you reach out to for help to like help craft that message of like making that impact because it, it is about being simple. Right. But we all know that simple isn't easy. Right. So it's a very uh, favorite story about like, uh, I forget which general wrote a letter to Lincoln and apologized. Uh, sorry. It's so long. I didn't have enough time to shorten it. Right. Where I think that's really the whole point is like, I got concise, punchy, impactful. Is that something somebody on your team was able to do? Is that something you worked with an organization, but with, uh, how did you guys solve that problem?
2: Great, great question. Um and, and, and to your point, you know, th- there's uh one of my mentors has a quote which is, you know, my, my price to write a thousand, you know, words is a thousand dollars. But if you want me to only write five hundred, that's two thousand right? dollars. Because <laughs> it takes awesome. that much
1: longer,
2: right? You know, totally to, to be thing, So so, you know, to your point, this is where, you know, there's a you know, sort of a, a startup vehicle that I that we believe has been very, very helpful to us, which really is, you know, kind of the 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 advisor approach. And and I think this is a great one for entrepreneurs which is, you know, as you're, you know, formulating your company, and you know, you have your sort of options pool set up, you know, finding the right network of people who maybe, you know, definitely aren't part of your company from an employee standpoint, but that really understand your market and that are entrepreneurs likely themselves and, and and folks that can really, you know, sort of aid in this process. And so at True Data, you know, we have, you know, a dozen plus advisors, some who are very focused on engineering and can help our engineering teams with contemporary methodologies, et cetera. But we also have some that are very focused on who are you know, CEOs who have, you know, successfully raised money and exited, you know, many, many businesses and who have been through, this fundraising and storytelling process a number of times. And so, you know, I would encourage any, you know, kind of entrepreneur to, to, to think about your advisor, you know, kind of network uh, within your, uh, your organization and how can you find somebody who has been through this fundraising process, you know, successfully a number of times to really, you know, get them on board with some, some stock options, uh, incentivize them and sort of, you know, spend uh, an hour a week or an hour a month really kind of digging into to that storytelling process. And so, yeah, you know, first one is, you know, advisors, if you have them and can kind of, you know, bring them on board, huge opportunity. You know, other, you know, options that, that we've used in the past are, there are actually companies that simply specialize in building pitch decks for fundraising. And so mm-hmm. one of the uh, folks who invested in us in, in one of our last rounds, um, you know, put us in contact with a firm that they use who that is their sole raison d'etre is we help understand your your background your market and we help you put that into simple sort of form and we have on staff a group of great designers to build pretty you know sort of visuals and decks a great group of former ceos who understand more of the, you know, kind of storytelling process and the fundraising, you know, arc, you know, even down to, you know, other kind of support staff along that way. And so obviously, those are, you know, aren't necessarily cheap things. But, you know, broadly speaking, for something like $10,000, you know, if that's, you know, capital that you can put to work for, you know, the purposes of getting more capital, you can find amazing people to help, you know, really build your fundraising decks for you, if that's something that's available.
0: That's great. That's great. And uh, yeah, you mentioned boards mentioned advisors, um, something that Shelly always likes to bring up, and I think is a really important part if we're going to develop as leaders, right? So you need help to grow your business, you need help to grow yourself. And uh, so who are your mentors? What are, some, what are some of the things that people in your life that really had an impact?
2: yeah absolutely you know so so early on at, at nielsen catalina um there there were a couple of folks who were who were really uh, sort of impactful. One of them was at that point our our head of product um who had kind of you know followed a similar kind of career trajectory and Arc started as sort of a very quantitative data scientist and then moved into a business development role and kind of ultimately you know uh took over product and 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 funny enough, he's actually one that we probably caught up, you know, once every three months or once every six months, sort of during my my true data 10 year, once we had, had parted ways. But he's somebody that I actually, you know, reached out to uh, just about uh, six months ago to actually become one of our, our newest advisors at True Data. And so, nice, awesome. you know, I, I think that relationship and having people that you trust, um, you know, and like probably first and foremost, right? You know, that that you can go to in some of those darker moments, if you will, but also people that know sort of have followed a path that you might want to follow and that you know frankly maybe most importantly have some of the serious skills that you know you believe that next step in your your career you know probably requires finding those people and nurturing those relationships um you know and I think frankly in a lot of ways just just being able to be vulnerable with with those kind of mentors you know builds a really really good relationship um and trying to you know sort of maintain and invest in those uh, is, is great. And and I'm always surprised by, you know, even if I feel like I haven't necessarily caught up with a a former mentor or sort of coach in in a long time, and I'm feeling, feeling guilty, it's, it's, you know, nine and a half or 10 times out of 10, right. That you write that person a note and they say, Oh, it's so good to hear from you. Definitely been too long. Let's, let's dig in. And so long story short, I think it's just a, a reminder to just, you know, reach out, put yourself out there uh, and talk to those people who you respect and, and you like, because uh, that is one of the, at least for me, one of the best ways to, to learn.
0: Awesome. Sorry, Shelly, for stealing your question.
1: No, no, it's perfect. Perfect timing. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, thanks so much. Uh, amazing. Amazing information. Really great insight. Boots on the ground experience I love the focus on the different regions. I do think the way that venture capital, you know, is represented here in, in the Midwest is very different. Right. And it's very much profit centric. We can argue pluses minuses around that, but you know, it, it's really, you know, to your point of like, from your business structure, what, what's benefit to you. And, but I, I really just want to say, thanks again. I really appreciate you coming on the show, uh, sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience and your voice. Cause you really have an awesome voice for radio <laughs> and you're not just a face for radio, as we always hear, you're a good looking yeah. guy. So you could do the video stuff, which is cool. Uh, me, I'm more of the, the, the audio stuff. We'll stay there.
2: Well, I, my, my running joke, Patrick, is I got the, the voice for billboards. So, you know, you know, you know how that goes.
0: <laughs> I like it. I like to say another uh, way on that subject, I've got a face for being a hand model, you know, while we're on the subject. <laughs> That actually came up this weekend. and I told my kids, I'm like, I could be a hand model. They're like, what are you even talking about? I'm like, there's models. <laughs> all right. So, well, thanks so much for coming on the show, sharing your wisdom, your experience. Uh, it's been a blast. Uh, congratulations on all the success and uh, we'll keep eyes on you and, and, you know, wish you nothing but the best in the future.
2: Really appreciate it, Patrick. Thanks so much, Shelly.
0: We also wanted to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us.
1: And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante 32.